Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we've been talking about the 10 treasures of the Christian fanatic. And um, we talked a little bit about the term fanatic last week and talked about the fact that fanatic has, I think, with good reason, a negative connotation. Because when you put all your eggs in one basket, when you become obsessive about a lot of things and fanatical about them, a lot of times they're things that just, they're, they're baskets that aren't really big enough to hold all your eggs, so to speak, and they, they just will break. And they will break down and they won't be what you need. And being obsessive about fallible people and fallible systems is not a necessarily a positive thing. But we talked about the fact that Jesus is, by definition, different, being God and being infallible. And so why not put all your eggs in his basket? And, and what that looked like, what that looks like might be different than what you think it looks like. And that's okay, too. In fact, it probably is. But what I want to talk about over the next 10 weeks is that, you know, there's a, there's a passage that says, in Scripture, it says, dwell in the land. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Then it says, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. And what's interesting is, by definition, the safe pasture that you're enjoying is because you're dwelling in that land. In other words, if there's a promise that's made, if you dwell here, we will keep you safe from all other things, but you choose to dwell somewhere else, you can't really blame the owners of that land for not keeping you safe somewhere else. And that's a lot of what it is. So if you're going to dwell in that land, that means live on that land. That means trust that that promise will be true. And that's what fanaticism, that's what obsession, that's what we're talking about when we talk about putting all our eggs in one basket with Jesus is this idea that we're going to enjoy safe pasture because it's on that land, because that land is where it is safe. So, the, so what we're talking about is 10 treasures. These are not sort of rewards that God gives you. Because it's not a quid pro quo that God says, just dedicate yourself to me and then I'll reward you with lots of good stuff. I think it is more that God says, dwell in the land, and there's, there's treasures in that land. There's perks in that land that don't exist in other lands. And so the first thing we talked about last week was we talked about a purpose of delight. And obviously, I'm not going to repeat that whole message, but I just want to remind you that what the point was is that purpose is something that we all feel a great longing and need for. And any sort of fanaticism will give you a sense of purpose. You'll wake up every day with an understanding of what you're to do that day. It's to devote yourself to whatever you're devoted to. But the Christian purpose is much different than a lot of us have thought. We think of the purpose of a Christian is to somehow, you know, gear down and be dutiful and, and serve God, even though it's no fun. And it's like eating your broccoli or your Brussels sprouts or something that's good for you. You feel like you should do it, but it's not really any fun. But that's not what the purpose of the Christian life is. Amazingly, Scripture tells us the purpose of human beings is to enjoy God. It's to delight in God. That's it. That is the purpose. Everything else that we're called to do flows from that. If we learn to delight in God, everything else flows from that. So we talked about that purpose of delight, which is different from any other sort of obsession or fanaticism that you have, is that you are actually created to delight in God. It's inherent in you. So we talked about that. Tonight, we're going to talk about the second treasure. And this is an identity. And again, just like last week, there's three little dots there. That means we're going to get more specific about that identity. But we're starting with the general. It's really amazing. Identity is huge. It may even be more innately felt based upon how fanatical people do get about any identity, the need for an identity, the need to be able to say, this is who I am. It is like it wired into us so strongly 
that we will, we will draw a line in the sand once we decide who we are. We will draw a line in the sand and we are willing to destroy ourselves and make decisions we hate and do things that we detest as long as we preserve that sense of who we are. So before we jump into what scripture says, I'd like to look at a great philosopher. It's not Hobbes, but it's somebody close to Hobbes. It's Calvin. <laughs> Those of you who can't see the screen, it's a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. And uh, it says this, Calvin and Hobbes are talking and Calvin says, I wish my shirt had a logo or a product on it. A good shirt turns the wearer into a walking corporate billboard. And he looks weirdly happy about this idea. And he says, it says to the world, my identity is so wrapped up in what I buy that I paid the company to advertise its products. And Hobbes says, you'd admit that? And Calvin says, oh, sure. Endorsing products is the American way to express individuality. <laughs> you know, this is one way that our identity is expressed by the things we own, right? By the things we purchase. Um, obviously, we're just having a little fun. Uh, he is one of my favorite philosophers, little Calvin and his tiger Hobbes together. But let's talk about identity a little bit. As I mentioned, this easily itself becomes, I think, a fanatical obsession. We, we, we are so inherently in need of being able to say who we are. And that makes sense, right? Not knowing who you are, not knowing what you're about, not being able to identify yourself. It's, a, it's kind of an aimless feeling. But when we decide who we are, sometimes we dig in with that right or wrong. We're going to hold on to that. You know, it's, it's interesting. As a counselor for many, many years, I saw this happen. I would, I would see people who would be so conflicted. They would come in and they would say, this is who I am and I hate it and I want to change. I'm angry or I'm anxious all the time or I'm depressed all the time or I'm addicted to this thing or I'm addicted to that thing or I'm obsessed about this or obsessed about that. And on the one hand, they would say, I do not want to be this. I want to change. But I noticed with many of them that in the course of counseling, if the suggestion was ever made that maybe that isn't who they were, that maybe even though it seemed so present in their life that maybe they were something more than that, it was interesting how often the response would be one of resistance and anger. That the response would be, no, that is who I am. Because even these negative things become so central to a sense of who we are that to have that sense of who we are taken away from us, it's terrifying. It doesn't feel good. I think it's interesting. There's some really, I think, amazing examples even today of, of how important identity is. And the fact that I have to, I will, I will, I don't have to, I choose to tread carefully here because it's not my goal to offend or anger anybody or to use this particular platform for certain political ideas. But the fact that I have to tread lightly on what I'm about to say is because what I'm about to say is so tied into who people think they are and who they tell you they are. And this is sexual preferences and gender issues. So think about this, sexual preference, we can call it sexual preference, but that isn't what it is to people. People don't say my preference, my orientation, my sexual preference is this, they say this is who I am. And if you don't like my preference, you don't like me. And if you try to change this, you're trying to change me. And I'm not in an argument right now about what's right or wrong there. The categories that we select in our world are different from the categories scripture gives us. We will maybe someday have a longer discussion about that, but not now. But the point I am making now is that we can see that it's become these desires, these attractions, these behaviors, these preferences, they've become wedded to who we are as people. In the same way that sometimes 
race becomes wedded to who we are as people. In the same way that our behaviors become wedded to who we are as people, in the same way that our emotions become wedded to who we are as people. And to disapprove of any of those in anybody is to be disapproving of that person because that is who I am. There's a dilemma, though, about the way we identify who we are. And it's a dilemma that I experienced and discovered, and, and I had a part in leading a bunch of young, impressionable children to clean, complete confusion on. I used to teach a homeschool class on philosophy to uh, the best philosophers in the world, and that's young children. And what we used to do is we used to have this discussion about who are you. We'd say, you know, philosophers deal with big questions. And one of the big questions they ask is, what does it mean to be something? What is your identity? Who are you? And I would say to them, who are you? And we'd pull out a big right board and we'd write up all of the things they would say. And, you know, you can, you can imagine the answers. Some of them would be, I am my father's daughter. I'm, my, I'm so-and-so's brother, right? Because that's how they were always referred to, poor person. You know, I'm so-and-so's brother. And, you know, so you'd write up those. Or, or they'd say, I'm a boy or I'm a girl. And they'd write up those. And, and, or they'd say, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a baseball player. So you'd write that up, you know. Or, or, or I really like puzzles. So you'd write that up. And they, they'd give all these things that they'd go through and you'd write them all. You know, sometimes they'd say, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty or I'm beautiful or I'm ugly. And I would tell them, I'll write it on the board, but I don't think you are. But, you know, that's what they would say, you know, and, and they, would, they would give all these things. And what's interesting is every single one of these fell into just certain categories. Appearance, relationship, actions, articulations, what I say about myself is what I am, emotions, and desires. And they all fell into these categories, and we'd make a long list, and we would take the whole time. This is the only exercise we would do this, this class. And we would take the whole time and we'd have this huge long list at the end. And I'd say, is there anything we left out? Does anybody feel like there's something that's not basically up here? And no, we'd, we'd finally, we'd have it all done. And the board would be filled. And then I would tear these poor kids completely down to nothing. <laughs> because what I would say to them is, let's take it one at a time. Because you've just told me, this is who you are. This is essential to you. And we'd take one and I'd say, if this changes in the next 10 years, will you still be you? And they would look at it and they'd say, well, so if I'm prettier or I'm uglier or I get plastic surgery or I get in a horrible accident and my appearance changes, am I still me? And they'd say, yeah, I guess I'd still be me. And they'd look at the, the preferences. You know, I, I play baseball. What if you stop playing baseball in 10 years? Will you still be you? Well, yeah, I guess I'd still be me. We would go through every item on the list and guess what? Every single item on that list we would, we would cross off. So we made this huge list of which everybody said, that is who I am. And then we'd go through and say, but if that changed, would that mean you were no longer you? And we'd cross it off. And at the end, I would ask the question, well, then who are we? <laughs> and the only conclusion we could come up with at that moment was something more. Something more. One possible answer is we're like the sum of all those things. That you have to put them all together and, that, and that's who we are. The problem with that is even that I would ask. Well, let's say that all of these things change at once. Would you still be you? And they would say yes. And I would say, well, then what is that? And they would say, I don't know how to describe it, but I know it's more. I know I'm more than just that. I know I'm more than just these pieces. 
And yeah, if that changed, I'd still be me. But that is what we wrestle with, isn't it? You can do this exercise yourself. You will end up in the same place. <laughs> That's what we wrestle with. Who are we? What are we? What does it mean that, that all these things that we think we are end up being at least somewhat peripheral? That we could remove those and still be us. So that's the, that's the dilemma. That's the question. Because on the one hand, we feel it very important that we identify who we are. And on the other hand, we have a really hard time even figuring out what that means and what that looks like. And I think a lot of things we do become obsessive about, we go there because we like the identity. I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. I'm what they call uh, Holmesians in America and Sherlockians in parts of England. And, and uh, you know, I really love it. And yeah, there's a part of it that I would say, that's me. That's who I am. But part of the reason it's fun to be in a group like that is because it is part of, it becomes something you can say, this is me. But if I hated Sherlock Holmes tomorrow, I don't know how that happens, but if I did, I can't say I'd stop being me. So the question becomes, where do we go with this? <laughs> how does Jesus offer anything different here? What can we learn about identity that scripture tells us that maybe is something better than what we've been able to come up with in our world and our culture and in our own minds? So let's start with Genesis. Because if we're going to talk about who we are and we're going to see what scripture says about it, it does seem like starting with the beginning and the creation of who we are might give us a little bit of an indication. And this is what it says. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. Now I'm going to tell you something here. Scripture tells us one thing about human beings, and that's that we're very complex. Even Scripture doesn't give us a nice, bite-sized, sound-bite answer of who we are. It says we're very complex. And so we're going to look at some Scriptures tonight, but I want to warn you before we press on, I'm going to, at times, just tell you what Scripture says. And I'm not telling you that because I'm trying to bamboozle you, but because we don't have time to spend the hours going through every piece of scripture that talks about who we are. I invite you, if you have questions, to look, to examine yourself, what it says. But in the interest of time, some things I'm just going to explain and tell you that I've drawn these from wealth of scripture and not from my own head. In fact, I, it's fair to say I've been spending the last 25 years of my ministry trying to understand what scripture says about who we are. It began as a counselor trying to understand what is even counseling doing? Are we fixing the spirit, the soul, the mind, the emotions, the heart, the flesh, the body, the desires? What, what, are, what is even happening in counseling? <laughs> Trying to understand, is there a difference between the brain and the mind? Is there a difference between the soul and the spirit? Scripture does not give us nice, clear, concrete answers on these questions, but it tells us a few things. And right here off the bat, before we even get into the creation of us, I want you to notice what it says about the creation of everything else. Now, we've skipped a lot, of, a lot of verses before this which re reiterate the same phrase here that you see over and over, according to their kinds. It says of everything that has any kind of life in it, plants and animals and fish and birds, it says of them over and over and over that God created them according to their kinds. And it's interesting to ask what that means. 
It's not difficult to figure it out, but it's good to stop and say, what is the meaning of that phrase? It's pretty simple. It means that when God created a cow, he created a cow according to what a cow is, according to its kind. When he created a bird, he created a bird according to what it is, according to its kind. But, but this is the first moment of their creation, so what does that mean? <laughs> it means that God had a concept in his head, right? This is what it means. It means God had a concept. He said, this is what a cow is, and I'm going to create creatures now that will be like that. It's like he had a blueprint, right? It's like you're an artist, and you have a picture in your head, and you create the picture according to what's in your head. And that's what God is doing, but he's a great artist who creates actual things and living things. And so as he does, he creates a cow according to what a cow is, a horse according to what a horse is, a, a, a flower, a tulip according to what a tulip is, a rose according to what a rose is, and so on and so forth. He creates everything according to what it is in his head. But it's this external blueprint, it's this thought, it's this concept that God has that he's making real. Fair enough. This actually is interesting. A lot of philosophers have recognized that things have a kind. And that this, in fact, affects our ability to understand the world at all. Plato, in particular, talked a lot about the fact that things are more than just their, their categorical sums. He says, for example, if, if, we, if I said to you, what's a horse, you would give me lots of ideas of what a horse was. And one of the things you might say is a horse has four legs. But if I take you out to a field after you say that, and I show you a horse that's lost one of its legs or was born without one of its legs, and it only has three legs, it doesn't throw you into confusion. You don't immediately go, oh, my gosh, what manner of creature is this? Instead, you say, oh, that's a horse with three legs. And Plato says, isn't that weird that we can do that? Because it means we know what a horse is according to what it is and not just according to the elements that make it up. So I think that that's in line with what we're being told here, that he makes these things according to their kind. And what would be very natural is as we keep reading, and now he says he's about to create man and woman, it would be very natural if what we read was, and God created humans according to their kind. That would make sense. But this is where it gets really interesting. Most of you know what's coming. This is what it says. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Isn't it fascinating? It repeats it the same way it repeated according to their kinds. Do you notice that? It says it three times in those few verses. Four times, actually. Made in our image, in my likeness. God made humans in his image. And I want you to understand, the author of Genesis wants us to see that contrast. Do you see that? He takes all this time saying all of the animals were made according to what they were. But when God made humans, he didn't stand back and say, what is my concept of a human? What's my blueprint? What's this external concept that I have? that I'm going to make humans out of. No, he says, I'm not going to make them according to what they are. I'm going to make them according to what I am. I'm going to make them like me. I'm going to make them to be little me's in a sense. Now, I want to be clear just because some people go wacky here. I'm not saying that we are gods. And if you need philosophical proof that the fact that God decided to make us in his image doesn't mean that we are gods, let me just remind you that one very clear distinction between us and God that is elucidated in this passage is that we are created and God is not. So the mere fact that we're created beings with a beginning makes us completely other from God already. But nonetheless, in some really important way, it says that we're made in God's image. And the question becomes then, what does that mean? <laughs> 
What does it mean to be made in God's image? What is that telling us? Now, the first thing you might think, and it would be very natural to go here, is you might think, well, that means that we're made to look like God. We're made physically like him. So God must look humanoid. That would be a reasonable understanding, except that the rest of scripture tells us that's not true. The rest of scripture tells us that God is a spirit, that he doesn't have a physical body. That when Jesus came in the incarnation in a physical body, that's different. But that for all of eternity, the Trinity had no physical body. They existed with personality and intention and choice and, and relationship, but they existed as spirit. In fact, I think it's likely that there was no such thing as physical until God created it. God created this thing we call physical. <laughs> all the tangible material things were created by God. They didn't exist before. God existed for all of eternity as spirit. So it doesn't simply mean that we were created in the image of God, meaning we were created to look like him, in fact, probably don't in, in any sort of physical way. I think the only time that I think God reveals himself to us in, in various forms throughout scripture. And I think because he made us with eyes and as far as I understand, our new bodies will have eyes too. He will reveal himself to us for all of eternity in some form, probably very similar to the form Jesus took on the earth would just be my guess. But God is not physical. As he creates us in his image, there must be something else he's referring to. And we get a glimpse of that just a chapter later in Genesis. So Genesis does something the Hebrews do a lot. It gives us a story and then it tells the story a second time with different details. That's just a very normal Hebraic way of talking. If that has struck you as a contradiction, that's actually not. It's just Hebraic. It's, it's what they do. So in Genesis 2 verse 7, it says this, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is in the same way that, according to their kind, was contrasted with the image of God. Here we have another contrast showing us what the difference is between men and animals. Animals are made from the dust of the ground. In fact, you could say scientifically everything's made from the dust of the ground. Same molecules, same building blocks. All that dust in your house is, is you. <laughs> And, and so as he creates things from the dust of the ground, he is using the same building blocks that he used for the animals that he used for us. I think that's the idea, that the physical nature is similar. And yet, it then says something different that it does not say in this context of animals. It says that God breathed into them the breath of life, and then it says they became alive. They weren't even really regarded as alive until that moment. I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moot argument, but I suspect they might have been animate before they were breathed into the breath of life, like animals are. They weren't called alive by scripture until he breathed into them. Now, here's what's fascinating. The word breath in the Old Testament, it is the same Hebrew word as the word that is translated spirit everywhere throughout the Old Testament. Same Hebrew word that's translated wind. Those three words, whenever you see them in the Old Testament, are actually the same word. It's all contextual. The editors, the translators have to say, does this mean spirit, wind, or breath? So when it says here that God breathed into us the breath of life, it is absolutely accurate to say that you could also read this as God the Spirit expired, exhaled himself, his spirit, into us, and we became a living being. <laughs> now, God is infinite, so I don't think when you take a piece of God's spirit, it diminishes him at all. And this is, again, in our attempt to understand things that are way too complex for us, I think it's fair to see this as saying that God gave a little bit of, made us out of a little bit of piece of himself. 
that the spirit he passes on to us, that's how we're in the image of God, not our physical nature, but our spirit. In fact, it's really interesting. It's like, if you really think about it, our physical nature is all about the fact that God created the physical environment and then he needed to create us to be able to exist in a physical environment. So we're physical because of our connection to the world, not because of our connection to God, but we're spiritual because of our connection to God. He has given us a piece of his spirit and I don't want to, you know, again, that's a way to say it. If that makes you uncomfortable, that's fine. He created a new spirit. But in any way you want to look at it, God created us to be in his image. And I think that image is reflected in something deeper than our bodies. Fair enough? And this spirit, this breath of God is supposed to be representative of God. This is how we are the image of God just to show you that two things, one that God does think this way, but also that something happened, something between this moment that we just read where, where we were created of the dust of the earth and then made alive by God's own spirit and breath. Something happened from then to this passage in first Samuel, something happened, which changed our ability to even understand who we were and what was important about who we were, but it didn't change God's ability to do that. And it says this. So here's the context. Samuel is a, a, a priest of God, and he is tasked with finding a good king. They had a bad king. Now he's tasked with finding a good king. And the description of good versus bad is simply this. Samuel is tasked with finding a king who will represent God because the last king did not. Now that is the same thing as saying he's tasked with finding the image of God to be king. Right? He's finding that representation of God. So he goes to this family, this, this family of, of uh, a shepherd who has all these kids. For some reason, we don't know why, God sends him there. He goes to this particular family. And the first guy they bring out is the oldest son of Jesse. And he is, from, from what we understand from this passage, he is glorious golden boy. He's tall. He's strong. He's handsome. He's powerful. I mean, let's be honest, if Hollywood wanted to have a king in a movie, this would be him. He looks like you, what you expect. You would call kingly and glorious. And Samuel, even Samuel, who's sent with this task, says when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. I mean, just think, this is that person that's just so impressive in their demeanor, their countenance, their appearance, that you're just immediately like, this person is amazing. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his height or his appearance for I have rejected him. God says, nope, wrong. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is just a reminder that God sees us as something more than this appearance, right? This external place. And as he's going to introduce David, ultimately, as the king who's going to become king here, it's not that David is ugly. In fact, he's described as, as ruddy and attractive. The words, though, in Hebrew tend to indicate sort of rough and plain. Even, even the words ruddy and attractive, they mean someone who's kind of not unappealing, <laughs> not repulsive, but also they mean kind of rough and basic. And so David shows up and here he is. He's kind of this rough and basic guy. And, and God says, it's the heart. It's the inside. There's something more that I'm looking at. But it also reminds us of something else. 
God doesn't chastise men that they look at the outward appearance. Do you notice that here? I mean, he chastises Samuel for relying on that, in a sense. But he simply makes a statement of fact. Man looks at the outward appearance. And let's be fair. What other choice do we have? <laughs> I mean, can I actually look into your heart? We like to say that all the time. I know your heart, but let's be honest, it's a lie. It's a guess at best. We see people's heart by what they do and what they say and how they present themselves. And that's not all wrong. That may be relevant, but you know what? We also know it can be misleading. Some people are really good at pretending, <laughs> right? And so in a sense, we don't have much else to look at. The, but, but part of what's happened is somewhere from Genesis to 1 Samuel, we began to see identity, the idea of who we are, the idea of defining people, we began to see it as more and more external. And we lost track of what was going on in the inside. We began to have a, a problem. So here's what I want to, and here's where I'm just going to give you several hundred years of history, and we're not going to go through all the verses. <laughs> but we'll make it quick. I mentioned that scripture says we're very complex. And in my study, as I've tried to understand who we are as people, I've discovered that, you know, when I say scripture understands we're complex, one of the ways that plays out practically is that scripture is not consistent. Sometimes it uses the word soul and it seems to mean flesh. And sometimes it uses the word soul and it seems to mean spirit. And sometimes it uses the word heart and it seems to mean emotions. And sometimes it uses the word heart and it seems to mean, you know, motivations. And so it's not always clear what all these are. And there's a lot of categories, right? And we like categories because we're trying to identify who we are. But you want a picture of even our own wrestling with the complexity of man, you know, all the temperament tests, right? We go all the way back to Aristotle and he defined personality types in four. And ever since then, it's been like technology and there's been a, an increase of the memory because now we went from four personality types to eight, to 16, to 32, to 64, to 156, 258, sorry, 100, and, I lost my math, 128, 252. And before too long, you know, as Enneagram's the big thing right now, before too long, we're gonna have a gigabyte personality test, which is just gonna have all these options that can be you. Because we make categories and the categories don't quite work, so we have to make more categories and they're not irrelevant. But we hunger so much for it, and we want it, and so we, we grab these. And, and Scripture acknowledges, yeah, there's a lot of complexity to trying to identify who you are. But Scripture gives us a nice pairing, a shorthand. It, with all that complexity, Scripture does say, but there are two parts of the human being that we can talk about, and we can talk about with substance, and that's the spirit and the flesh. Just to break it down as simply as possible, of course, of course, the flesh can be broken down into a million subcategories and the spirit maybe can be broken down to a million subcategories. I don't really know. But in some ways, scripture talks about spirit and the flesh. Really common, uh, familiar example. Jesus says at one point that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? In any human being, the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. So it's interesting the word spirit though, right? Because that's that word breath. So we have this idea from the very beginning of scripture, we have this, this combination of spirit and flesh. And we have the spirit, which is the image of God. That's who we truly are, right? That's who we are. That's what makes us alive. That's what's called a living being, but it's housed inside this flesh. And, and I think what we see in scripture is this flesh is not just your body, 
it is your body, but it's also your actions themselves. It's the behaviors, and it's the way your brain works. Perhaps it's even your brain, because that's a physical thing. You know, it's, it's your emotions, and it's the things that you think, and it's the desires you have. Scripture says that these are all part of the flesh. And it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that these are evil. Sometimes we've been taught that, but that's not what it says. But what it does say is that at the very beginning in Genesis, they were never created to be us. They were created to be tools that we could use. So we, the spirit, who we truly are, we're given this physical body so we can interact in this physical world that God had created. And our desires were to, be mass, were to be our tools. And our emotions were to be our tools. And our actions were to be our tools. And all these things were to be tools of us. But then this terrible thing happens. And remember, we talked about that we were created to delight in God. And so God says to Adam and Eve, he says, I want you to delight in me. And I want you to know that I am all that you want. I am everything that is delightful to you. Every good gift I give you comes from me. And everything you love is a reflection of me and, and delight in me. And he says, there's a fruit tree over there. And I want you to understand you don't need that fruit tree. Because everything that looks good to you in that fruit tree, I am. And I want you to know that, and I want you to choose that, so I want you to trust me. And they don't trust him, and they're led astray, and they go to the tree, and it says specifically, they looked at it, and they decided that it was pleasing to the eye. This is more beautiful visually than anything God is. And they said, it's good for food. This is more stimulating to our senses and our appetites and our desires than anything God is. And they said, it looks like it's also good for gaining wisdom. This will give us more wisdom than God could ever give us. And of course, that fruit tree may have been a fig tree. I know the theory is apple, I go with fig. It doesn't really matter. Can you imagine any piece of fruit actually being all that? <laughs> no. Of course they're wrong. Of course it's silly to think that this is the most beautiful thing God could create. To think this is the most delicious, satisfying thing God could create. To think this is the place of all wisdom but they become fanatical about that tree and they eat of that tree and it all goes downhill from there. And one of the things that God told them is if you eat from the tree, you will die. Well, interestingly, they live physically for another couple hundred years. In the world of consequences, we call that delayed to the point of uselessness. But I don't think that's what he meant. I think it is true that death didn't enter the world until that moment, right? I think that's when everything starts to decay and entropy and die because the breath of life is what keeps things alive. The spirit of God is what keeps things moving and that is withdrawn. I think that their spirit died. I think the who that they are died. We say, well, they didn't die because we're looking at what? The flesh. But the really tragic thing is that internal them, that real identity, it's gone. It died. And picture being at that moment. Picture what that's really like. It's hard for us to picture because we don't come from this place. But try for a moment to imagine that you have a life in which you are so confident in who you are. You are so self-actualized, to use a psychological term. You are so complete in your knowledge of you that you're not controlled by anything. That your desires flow to help you accomplish the things that you actually want instead of so often leading you into places that you wonder how you got there. And your emotions don't master you. 
they serve you. And your behavior is never inexplicable. It's always exactly what you wanted to do. And your brain is never confused. It's always operating exactly under the commands that you give it. And you have this sense of fullness. You know who you are. You are content with who you are. You are comfortable in your own skin is sometimes the vernacular. And then imagine that someone reached inside you and took that all away. Can you imagine the emptiness that your flesh now feels? The void that you now experience. The complete lostness that you now undergo. This sense of identity, identity, boy, I can't even say that word, sense of no identity. Don't try to put listness on the end of identity. It's too hard. Imagine the, the depth of that. What's interesting is scripture refers to this as several different ways. It calls it death, which seems appropriate to me. It is you that has died. It also calls it emptiness and it calls it separation and it calls it even enslavement because what scripture also tells that this happened at this point is that when this flesh is left with this lack of purpose because there's nobody to serve and this emptiness because we don't know who we are, the emotions and the preferences and the desires all begin to get together and say, but we have to be something. And scripture says in, an, in a sort of an amazing act of creation, but also a really tragic one, we actually created ourselves out of our tools. So we became our desires and our emotions and our behaviors. And more than that, says Paul, we became enslaved to them. Instead of mastering our emotions, we now become controlled by our emotions. Instead of being in charge of our desires, we now become enslaved by our desires. Instead of being able to control our actions and movements, we now become driven by them. But for the next hundreds and hundreds of years, that's all we know. Can you picture that? Human beings now only know that of themselves. So by the time they get to 1 Samuel, what does it even mean to look at the heart? What in the world is the heart? What does that even mean? Does that mean good intention? Does that mean motivation? Does that mean emotion? What do we mean when we say, I love you with all my heart? Do we just mean I love you with all my emotions? That doesn't seem quite enough or quite right, does it? Because we all know emotions are fickle. <laughs> it should mean more than that. <laughs> what do we even think is happening on the inside? And the answer is, we don't know. And too often we fear nothing. And so the flesh, the human beings now have lost their ability to know who they are except by their behaviors, their, their, their desires, their worldly relationships, their actions. And we get to that right board where we're writing all those things up there and then we're saying, and who are we? And we say, I don't know, it's all empty inside. I don't know where to go from there. And so this becomes the confusion. This is where we stand. See, it, it's not that the flesh is bad. This is, this is something we've been taught that I think is incorrect. It's not the flesh is bad. It's just that it isn't us. In scripture, the flesh is never portrayed as evil. In fact, Jesus came in the flesh and lived a sinless life. But the flesh is pictured as frail and weak and superficial. Scripture indicates that part of our problem is that we see ourselves only in terms of our flesh, our desires, our thoughts, our expertise, our actions, both sinful and sacred. We think that, though, that these are who we are, but in reality, we're something deeper than these things. And these things were only made to serve our true nature. 
but the flesh is too weak and too temporal to actually be our true self. But we've known nothing else. Our confusion is understandable because we have nothing else to look at. This is why we describe the human state as fallen and dead and empty and separated and lost and enslaved. Because these are all descriptions of that movement from identity to no identity. They all reflect this idea of lacking our true natures. But if that's the end of the story, that's not the gospel because that's not good news. So the next thing that happens, something amazing happens, is this. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Again, we see things differently than we used to. We don't just look at the appearance anymore. We don't see ourselves as just the flesh. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation is gone. The old has gone. The, uh, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. That actually is written. The grammar of that is fascinating. It's much less wordy, but it was hard to translate without getting lost. But I like it because it's got such punch. What it actually says when it says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It's actually like a mathematical formula. It says, man in Christ, new creation. That's what it says. There's, there's no connecting words. It's very strange grammar. But I think it's because Paul wants to say, there's no separation. Man in Christ is new creation. Just put a little two dots or an equal sign or therefore, whatever you want mathematically. But that's how he writes it. Man in Christ, new creation. No ifs, ands, or buts. It just is. You have an identity. You are somebody. It goes on to talk about that we have a ministry then to let other people know this. We're going to skip over that for now. And it ends with this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a phenomenally strange thing for Paul to say. The gospel didn't just, it wasn't just about God forgiving you. It wasn't just about God winking and saying, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll forget everything you didn't even come in. It was about God becoming sin so that we could become what? The righteousness of God. That's a weird phrase, but I think it's very close to image of God. I think it's very close to the idea that we are now here. We are, and that's why all that stuff about being ambassadors and reconcilers, because we now are representatives of God. Not we should be, we are. We became the righteousness of God, the rightness of God. Everything that's right about God, we became. You say, not me. We'll get there in a second. What Paul says is, man in Christ, new creation, don't say not me. Because something deep inside you changed. Problem is, all that stuff, all that flesh, all that superficiality stayed the same. And if that's the only way we identify ourselves, then when the stuff inside changed, we didn't notice. And I think genuinely some of us didn't notice. <laughs> Does that make sense? The flesh should change. Because as we have a new identity, as we recognize who we are, that should affect things. And that often does. It usually does. But that's not what this is about. This is about the core of who you are. You are a new person. Galatians says it this. Paul says it this way in Galatians. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is talking about that creation that we made of the flesh. This, this mess of appetites and desires and emotions and behaviors that we think is us, Paul says that was crucified with Christ at the cross. That's dead. 
And that's no longer you. But then he says, I no longer live, but Christ didn't, lives in me. But then the very next, first, very next line, he says, the life I now live. Now, is that confusing? I don't live except the life I do live. Yeah, because he's talking about something really complex. So on the one hand, he's saying that flesh, that mess of appetites and all that, that's dead. But now we have this new creation. We live a new life. And he says, the life I now live in the body, right? Notice he doesn't say the life that is my body. The life I live in my body. We just reside in this thing. This isn't us. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. Now, what's that about? Well, because our identity, if it's based on sight, it will only go so far as the superficial aspects of the flesh. Yes? But if it's based on believing God, if we put all our eggs in the Jesus basket and we say, I'm going to believe God even above my own eyes, one of the benefits of that is you get to believe that you are so much more than you thought you were. You get to believe that you're not enslaved and obligated and relegated to this mess. Even as much as you dress it up, it's still a mess. And that's the problem. We know that. We want to present it as if it's not. But we know we're more than that. We're less than that, we fear. But Paul says, if we live by faith, if we trust that God knows who we are as our creator better than we know who we are, if we trust that when God says, I made you a new creation, that he did not lie to us, then it gives us the ability to live our life from there, from our true nature, instead of from this false nature, this superficial place that we reside. But here's what's weird about this. See, all this stuff that I keep calling superficial... It is superficial, but it's also tangible, isn't it? Which means to us that it seems to be weighty and substantive. So we can touch it, we can feel it, we can see it. The problem is, that's not the way it works. That's actually not the way the universe works. You know what we know about the flesh? It's temporal. It's temporary. We all know that. Not, not, only the very most deluded humans in the world think that they're gonna, their flesh is going to last forever. The rest of us understand it's temporary. You know, forever, scientists have been talking about what makes something real. And, and there's dimensions, right? There's three dimensions. There's height, width, and depth. And many scientists say the fourth dimension is, do you know what? Duration. The fourth dimension, sometimes they call it time. If you're in a time travel movies, they call it time. It's duration. Similar idea. But here's what that means. Think of it for a second. If I have an object in my hand and it has no height, width, or depth, I don't really have an object in my hand. It's not real, right? But if I have an object in my hand that has height, width, and depth, and no duration of existence, it's also not real, <laughs> right? And we tend to think the shorter the duration, the less real it is. For example, a bubble. If I have a bubble that has height, width, and depth, but its duration is three seconds, then we kind of think it's pretty ephemeral. It's kind of ephemeral. It's not really real. Yeah, yeah, I know ephemeral is not a word. It's kind of ephemeral. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> we think of it as not really real. And even other things, right? The, the things bloom and die really quickly. They seem less real to us than things that last longer. You know, and, and we even do that. We build buildings. The longer the building, the more real it seems to us, the more substantive. 
Well, but if you take that out to its extreme, the most real things actually have no height, width, and depth. <laughs> the things that last forever are things like God and love and spirit. <laughs> things that don't have height, width, and depth but have duration. And you don't have to buy all this from a scientific standpoint, but scripture absolutely says this. The most real things are the things you can't see. The most real things are the things that are invisible. It says that we're going to trade in our imperishable body, imperishable body for what? I mean, sorry, we're going to trade in our perishable body for an imperishable body, one that's permanent. Now, I do think physical will last forever because it appears that that's the plan, that God is going to give us physical bodies, at least as far as I understand it. If I'm wrong, I will have absolutely no problem acknowledging that when that happens. And it would be weird not to. But, but I do think that there's this idea of, of eternity that has to do with reality. And so what God wants to say to us is, I've given you an identity which is actually more substantive than the one you're clinging to. It's more real. It's eternal. And it may not have height, width, and depth, but it's got an eternal duration. And it is you. It is the you I created you to be. It is more you than all these other things you're messing with. All these other things you're drawing the line in the sand. I actually think this, and again, I'm going to move from this topic quickly, but I think our problem in our culture today, the real root of our problem with, with the million pronouns and the gender questions and the sexual orientation, the problem is not most significantly that the categories differ from the ones Scripture give us. The problem most significantly is that those are not who we are. And we're insisting they are. Look, we can disagree about those categories, but what I want to say to you is either category is not who you are. Let's have an argument about 96 pronouns versus two, but let me remind you the scripture says there is no male or female in Christ. Now expand that to all your other pronouns and we're in a good starting place to have a discussion. It's not who you are. Our problem is we're so insistent it is. And that is not substantive. That is temporal. That is superficial. How much problem has it caused us in our life, in our world, in our history, that we can't get past the idea that race is the most defining identifier of who you are? That's a problem. I'm not saying culture doesn't matter. I'm not saying we shouldn't acknowledge that in this world there are different races. But I am saying we've got to remember that's not who we are. <laughs> That's not permanent. In our world, in our culture, if you're gay, you're gay first and foremost. If you're white, you're white first and foremost. But scripture insists that these things are peripheral at best. And if that challenges you, I'm okay. I don't want to offend you, but I'm okay challenging you. Scripture says those aren't who we are. We're children of God. We're not just the total of what we do, desire, and think. And being a child of God means something. And I challenge you to figure out what. Because it's substantive. And that leads us to just a very quick illustration I want to give you. Some of you have heard this before. I'm going to give you the very short form. Here's the reason. Here's the benefit. So like we talked about last week with the purpose of desire, I mentioned that, you know, every human being actually, I mean, delight, purpose of delight. I mentioned that every human being has this purpose. God created all of us with the purpose to enjoy God. So that's not a perk of being a fanatic. That just is. But the perk of being a fanatic is that you get to recognize it and you get to pursue it. 
You get to actually throw yourself into the idea that my whole life can be about delighting in God. What would that mean if every moment was about delighting in God? What would that change? How would that affect the way you see life? I'm not saying hard things don't happen, but what if in the middle of those hard things you think, but my purpose is to find a way to delight in God? What would that change? What would that mean about even that hard thing? Would it give it meaning it doesn't currently have? I believe it does and will. The perk is recognizing it. Likewise here, every Christian, I believe, as as Paul explained it in Galatians and Colossians and Corinthians and as he does over and over throughout the letters, I believe that every believer in Christ, as he says, is a new creation. That identity comes whether you're fanatical about Jesus or not. That just is. But the perk, again, is recognizing that. Being able to believe that you are more than you thought you were. Being able to operate from that, and that absolutely affects your life. And here's how I want to share with you how it does. I want you to picture, this is the Oort illustration, and the Oort principle comes from this. I want you to picture a man, we'll call him Wilbur, who's completely nuts, 100% insane. He believes with all his heart, he's very confused about his identity. He believes he's a pig, 100%. Not a male chauvinist or a slob, an actual pig. Grunting, oinking, roll in the mud, eat slop, pig. And I just have two really quick questions for you. One is, how's he going to behave at any given moment? Like a pig. Or at least like he understands pigs behave. And number two, does that actually make him a pig? No, it does not. And what's fascinating about that is, let's say that we, bring, we want to go help him because he's deluded. He's delusional. We want to help him. So we want to go up to him. And you'll notice how weird it would be if our, if our approach with him was to go up to him and say, I can see by the way you're behaving that you are, in fact, a pig. And now my advice to you is stop acting like a pig that you are. Now, how helpful is that? Not at all. In fact, if we're really persuasive, what that leads us to is somebody who's going to pretend that he's a human being so that other people won't be disgusted by his pigness, but deep down inside believes he's a pig. That person will be miserable and will find it very hard not to roll in the mud. But what if we were able to go to that person and say, hey, I see that you're acting like a pig, which is interesting because it sure looks to me like you're a man. So I think it would be interesting if you maybe acted like a man. (laughs) If we were actually able to persuade him of that, it changes everything. Then he doesn't have this deep shame that he's actually a pig. He has this incredible enlightenment that he's actually a man. You know, it's interesting. This is where Ort comes in. Ort is a pig. He's a friend of mine. He's actually a stuffed pig, but let's pretend he's a real pig for a moment since we're changing identities anyway. Ort is a pig, and what's interesting is if we walk by Ort's pig pen and he's rolling in the mud doing pig things, it never occurs to us to go to him and say, you're really disgusting, stop acting like a pig. Because he's a pig. In fact, if he decided, oddly, somehow, that he wanted to be a human being and he tried to live like a human being and he came in our house and he started to try to eat with knives and fork, I think we would be amazed first. But then secondly, I think we'd be like, no, that's still not right. It's not that it's better to be a man when you're a pig. It's better to be who you are. And this is what Paul tells believers. He says to them, look, I understand you were only the flesh. That's all you had. But now you're a new creation. You're no longer a pig. The hard thing is you still look like a pig when you look in the mirror. So Paul says, you got to trust me. You got to trust God. And you got to know that you've been changed because if you do, it will change the way you live your life. 
Paul doesn't just say stop rolling in the mud because it's sinful and wrong. He actually more frequently says stop rolling in the mud because it makes no sense for a human being. You have sweat glands. That's why pigs roll in the mud, just to be clear. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. It's interesting that Paul, in his sternest exhortations to the most rebellious believers, does not call them sinners. He calls them saints. He calls them holy ones. He calls them children of God because his call to, him, call to them is not, I see by your behavior you're a pig, now stop acting like it. His call to them is, I see by your behavior you think you're a pig, you really should get over that. So the Ort principle is this. A man who thinks he's a pig will act like a pig. A pig who thinks he's a man will act like a man. But neither the strength of their conviction, sorry, the strength of their delusion or the consistency of their behavior has any impact on their actual nature. In reality, each will continue to be as God has made him to be. Thus, the Ort principle, will not, what you believe will not change who you are, but it will affect how you live. One of the perks, one of the benefits of being fanatical about Jesus is you get to dive into that faith that God knows what he's talking about, and you're more than you thought you were. You're better than you thought you were. You're more complete than you believed you were. You're more whole than you had any reason to hope you were. And all that stuff on the outside is just stuff. And it can change because it's not you. So, purpose of delight and an identity of substance. The second treasure of the Christian fanatic is an identity of substance. The conviction that we truly are more than we appear more than the conflicting mess of appetites, behaviors, thoughts, and the ways we present ourselves. I hope you can begin to tap into, to glimpse, to think, to consider, to contemplate the possibility of the freedom that comes in knowing you are whole and you are you, and it doesn't matter if other people see it or not. (laughs) One of the most exhausting things about being human is trying to always present ourselves. What if you actually didn't have to? What if it actually didn't matter? Not only that, there's great freedom to change. You don't have to dig your heels in. You don't have to draw that line in the sand and say, I can't become this because if I do, who will I be? You know who you will be? You'll be who God created you to be. And it will be amazing. To grow, to not be defined by the world around us, to know we are without having to make it so. But even more than that, it's not just any identity. We are the one our creator planned for us. It is a substantive identity because it is the identity that was planned for us from the beginning. It's that identity that is connected to the purpose of delighting in God. You are a delighter in God. Not you should be. You are. It's built into you. It's wired into you. It's part of that new creation. And if you think you you aren't, it's just because you're not always recognizing it when it happens. Children wrote C.S. Lewis, his great book, Narnian Chronicles books. They wrote one of uh, children wrote Lewis letters. And in his book, there's a book called Letters to Children. He answers one of these letters. One of the children wrote him and said, I'm nervous because I love Aslan more than Jesus. And C.S. Lewis very wisely wrote him back and said, no, you don't. 
You're just only now seeing who Jesus is through Aslan. You love Jesus. And I just think that's brilliant because we so often think we're not delighters in God because we don't recognize what those things are that are in our heart that are reaching out for God. Our identity of substance is as his image. We are made after the blueprint of God. They may sound like new age hokum to say we carry a divine spark in us. And to be honest, it is a little bit hokum if you say that about every living being in the human, in the world. But it is the promise that Paul says God made to us at our salvation. I just want to read you this passage, make one comment and then we'll wrap up. And I know it seems late, but remember we have this 10 minute break in the middle. So it's not as bad as it seems. (laughs) Just reminding you. (laughs) It says for you died, right? We've seen that, that, that flesh, that, that idea, that mess, who you think you have to be right now. You don't have to be that person because that person's dead. (laughs) For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I want you to think about this for a moment. I understand your life is hidden. I wish someone had told me that when I was younger because I grew up wondering why I couldn't find it and everybody else seemed to know where it was. (laughs) Your life is hidden. It's just right there. Paul says it outright. One of the beautiful things of scripture, it's the only religion I've ever heard say, your life is hidden. But not only does it say it's hidden, it tells us where it's hidden. Which basket, which door do we open to find it? Where do we go? And I want you to think about what this means. If your life is hidden with Christ in Christ. And if when Christ appears, you will appear. That makes sense because that's where your life is. If that's where your life is, then when you throw yourself into Christ, does that mean you will find less of yourself? You will be less of yourself and you will lose more of yourself? Or does it mean you'll actually find yourself? But this is where Jesus says that weird paradox that he who seeks his life will lose it. And he who loses it for my sake will find it. Why? Because if you try to find yourself, if you say, I can't really throw myself into Jesus till I figure myself out. Because Jesus doesn't want a broken, void, empty person. I got to figure this out before I go to Jesus because I'm not there yet. And you spend all your time trying to find yourself. The issue is you're looking in the wrong place. Because you're over here. I hide things from my kids sometimes. I give them clues where they are. I had one child growing up who I would tell him exactly where they are and he would refuse to look there. And I would say, that's not my fault. (laughs) Well, I think God must be that way with us. Your life's over here. And we're like, hold on, God, let me find my life first. It's like, it's over here. What a blessing. What a treasure to know that if you dwell in the land, If you throw yourself into Jesus, that's where you'll find yourself. That's where you'll discover who you were meant to be. Take all the Enneagrams you want. Do anything else you want, but by all means, make sure that where you look for life is here. And make sure you recognize that who you are in Jesus is so much more than all of that other stuff. All of it. He goes on, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. All he's saying here is, you're not a pig. Stop living like a pig. And then he says this. Here, meaning in Christ, 
He says, you are being renewed. He says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of the creator. Why is it that we're being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the creator? Because that's us. That's us. We're being renewed in who we are. And then he says this, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In Galatians he says there's no male or female. All these things out here, they're not who you are. What an amazing God we have. That the first two benefits of devoting yourself exclusively to him, the first two benefits of being willing to be exclusive the, the, the beauty of God is that when we throw everything into him, the treasures we find there are not small. They're not insignificant. And they're not a loss. You find there a purpose of enjoyment in God. And you find there that you've been waiting there. <laughs> you find yourself. Go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.